Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 12 again tonight one more time in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've been in verse 11 and 12 for a few weeks. And uh, the end of last week, I finished the message, and Brother Humphrey says to me, he goes, he says, you missed it. And I said, what? And he says, you missed it. You didn't finish the verse. And he said, and he said to me, he's like, uh, you can't just comment on something and then move on past it. And he's like, that part was right in the middle of the verse. And I said, I said, brother, you can't, you can't squeeze it all in into 35 or 40 minutes. Like people are falling asleep on a Wednesday night. And uh, I think that he forgets that he can't even get through one page of notes in Sunday school. So. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to be here one more time tonight, and we're going to finish out these thoughts out of chapter 1. Again, let me read the verses, verse 11 and verse 12, and we'll just uh, quickly rehearse the context and then get to where we're going tonight. And I have a prayer letter to read tonight. We'll take some prayer requests, a couple of announcements, uh, things like that as well at the end. So... You follow along here tonight, and we'll ask the Lord to bless His Word. Amen. Verse 11, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the chapter one of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica is, is really mostly about uh, his greeting to them. He's going to be getting to the real issue uh, and why he's writing this second letter in chapter two. And we'll get over to that. But chapter one is mostly about Paul's greeting to them and uh, leading into the issue that he wants to address. That being said, it's not just a regular, you know, hi, how are you kind of a greeting. It's full of truth. It's full of doctrine. It's obviously inspired scripture from the Spirit of God. And so as we, it's important for us to, to consider all that is here. And as we started it, we made note of the fact that Paul, first of all, stated that he was very proud of this church. And you've heard this several times now. Hopefully you'll have a good grasp of chapter 1 before all this is over. But he said he was very proud of them. He said in verse 3 and 4, we give thanks for you. We're grateful for you. He said we glory in you, in the churches of God. And Paul said I make, we make our boast. We're bragging on you. And it's fitting, verse 3. He says, as it is meet. You deserve this. It's fitting. And then we began to highlight the things that Paul was thankful for, things that he was uh, thanking the Lord for things that he was even bragging on them about to other churches. And he said in verse 3 that he was thankful for them because they were a church that was growing in their faith. Verse 3, we're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. And that word faith, we said, was their conviction of truth. 
and it's, it's truth itself. And so their, their conviction of truth itself was growing exceedingly. Remember, this was a very young church, not old at all in the Lord. And so uh, Paul was thankful to the Lord for the fact that their faith was growing exceedingly above and beyond even what he had anticipated or thought. Secondly, he was thankful for the fact that they were a church that was also growing in love. Verse 3, And the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. And he says, Every one of you are taking part in this. All the members of the church have this love. And so Paul was proud of them because of how they had endured persecution and suffering, how they were growing in spite of that persecution and the tribulation that they were facing. And he said in verse 4, we, we glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. And so Paul was proud of them because of that. The second section, verses 6 through 10, we stated and said that this was Paul encouraging them in the middle of their persecutions. And we don't have the time to read all of those verses but in order to encourage them to continue to endure, Paul reminds them of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. He is their great hope. And that's the issue that Paul is going to be getting to uh, in chapter 2, is again regarding the return of the Lord. There were some in that church who thought that the tribulation was already happening. And so Paul was going to correct that uh, on the basis of the fact that the Lord hasn't come yet. And so we'll get to that in chapter 2. But he wants to encourage them in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their great hope. And we had said that the return of the Lord was going to produce two things. And we looked at that in verses 7 and 10. It was going to provide rest for the believer, but it was going to bring about retribution for the unbeliever in verses 8 and 9. And so Paul seeks to encourage them to press on with the reminder that Christ is faithful, that He's going to come just as He said there would be rest for the saints. But not only that, Paul seeks to encourage them with this thought in verse 11, Wherefore also we pray always for you. And so Paul says, I'm praying for you. And that was meant to be an encouragement for them as well because of their persecution, because of their trial. And in these verses, we said we would consider the prayer and uh, itself and, and the purpose of it in verse 12. So what did Paul pray for? In verse 11, he prayed that they would be counted worthy of this calling. Not that they would escape tribulation, but that they would be counted worthy by God in their tribulations. Secondly, in verse 11, we said that Paul would pray that God would continue the good work that he had begun. Verse 11, we, we pray for you always that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. And so Paul says he's praying that God would continue the good work that he had begun, fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness. Accomplish the good pleasure of His goodness toward you. That speaks of God's purpose. It speaks of God's intentions towards us as believers, towards them as 
believers in Christ. It speaks of God's intention toward us that it's good. God has good purposes, good intentions towards us. And that flows from the fact that God Himself is good. That God would continue that good work that He had begun that flows from the fact that He is good Himself. And Psalm 72, verse 18, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the application that we made from that is that we can trust God. We can trust his character because he's only good. He only does wondrous things. And so that means, listen, it means that when God wants to change our plans in life about something we can trust that His plans are always good and only good. Sometimes, and we made this application as well, say, I want to do the Lord's will. I want to find the Lord's will. Sometimes doing or finding the Lord's will is more about denying or surrendering or sacrificing self and things than it is about actually doing something. It's coming to the place of, Real surrender. Sometimes the will of God is more about that than doing something else. Because if we can come to the place where we're nothing, because it's all surrendered to the Lord, then He can take us and do anything according to His will. And many times we say we want to do the Lord's will. And every Christian would say that. Maybe it's in our heart. We actually, I want to. I think I really want to do the Lord's will. But in reality, what we're really wanting is for God to agree with what I have in mind so that His will begins to marry with my will and I get what I've desired or dreamed of in my mind. Well, the Lord wants us to come to a place of full surrender and to trust Him that His way is always best and His way is only good. And so if He wants to change my plans, I should surrender that to Him and trust Him because He's only good. Amen? And God needs and wants to flip that around in our lives, this idea of wanting God to agree with what I've already made my mind up to be. A lot of times we can convince ourselves of something like, oh, this is the will of God. And we've told ourselves so long that this is the will of God, that we actually begin to believe it, right? When it's not actually the will of God, but I've just convinced myself that it is. Sometimes it happens. And God wants to flip that around, and God will do that in our life. He's begun a good work, and He's going to do that. Sometimes it's through chastening that He gets us to that point. The chastening in our life to bring about correction or to get us, uh, like Hebrews 12, 11 says, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. In the moment, this chastening is hard and I don't like it, but there's a good purpose in it. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. What is the good in that? What is God's good pleasure in that? The peaceable fruit of righteousness in your life. Sometimes He does it through hard trial. 
like Job, what was the good pleasure that God had about all the things that Job suffered? Well, Job said himself in Job 23.10, but he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. The trial was for a purpose to bring about a more pure Job. In the end, God had this purpose in mind to give Job a greater understanding of God himself, a fear of the Lord in an extra measure. And the point of all of that is to simply say this, if there is anything that is good in you or anything that is good in me, it's the fruit of God's good pleasure and his good will being worked out in us. We should desire that. Amen? We should yield to that, even if it's hard. Because in the end, after it's all said and done, we're going to be able to see how very good God really is. In the moment, I can't see it. But remember that He only doeth wondrous things. And that work that God has begun that He wants to accomplish, and Paul is praying this, that God would fulfill or accomplish all the good pleasure of His goodness in your life, that work particularly is a work of faith. And he says, with power. That word with means in. It's in power. It's the power of God that not only begins, but that carries on and perfects that work of faith in our life. And those were the things that Paul prayed for, for these believers in Thessalonica. But what was the purpose in this prayer that he had. Well, verse 12 tells us the purpose. Here's the reason. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Paul pray for these things? First of all, that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified. That is the end. Listen, that is the end that we should all aim at in everything that we do and everything that we desire, that God and Christ in all things may be glorified. Now listen, when it's not wrong for us to make plans for life. It's not wrong for us to, to, to sort of chart some things out. But listen, this is the principle that in anything and everything that I attempt to do or desire to do in life, it ought to be for the purpose that God would be glorified or magnified through it in my life. Therefore, if there are things that I am wanting to do or things that are ambitions that are not going to produce or bring about glory for the Lord, what should that tell us? It's not really about, the, it's, not about it's not the Lord's will because God's will for us is that we bring glory to himself, to his name. That's the end that we should at least aim for, that Christ in all things would be glorified. That word glorify, it means, it means to make him look good. But it means to make him look as good as he is. In other words, an accurate reflection, an accurate depiction of Jesus Christ. Not my idea of what that should be. To make him look as good as he really is. 
that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified. The name, it refers to all that the Lord is. It refers to His attributes. It refers to His character. It's like, it's like that there would be this accurate picture of exactly how good and how great and how awesome Jesus Christ is that would be reflecting through my life. What is the top priority of our life is the question here. A lot of times, and typically, it's my happiness that is the paramount thing. This is the thing I'm working for. This is the thing I'm shooting for. This is why I work my job. This is why I have these things. It's like, it's like so often the main thing for me is to try to bring about happiness for me. Or to bring contentment for me. And so these are the things I'm pursuing after because it makes me happy. And the principle and the point is, is that our happiness should always be subordinate to this ultimate end to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Okay? Everybody got that? No, I don't really got that. I got the idea down. But the fulfilling of that, it's hard to find. But that's, this is the point, too. It's not about me fulfilling it. It's about the Lord fulfilling His good pleasure in my life to bring Himself glory. Listen, He, he is dishonored. We're talking about the name of Jesus Christ being glorified. He's dishonored by unbelief. He is dishonored. His name is dishonored by cowardice. His name is dishonored by an unworthy walk or lifestyle of those who profess to know Jesus Christ but don't live it. Their life is not reflecting it. He's dishonored. When the highest goal, the highest aim should be that Jesus Christ is glorified. You understand that? But in the same way, only opposite, He is glorified. He is honored by the life of the saint that lives by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. The saint who lives by faith, the saint who lives in patience and hope of the return of the Lord, the saint that lives in obedience to the Word of God, the saint that lives in good works in this world, is the very thing that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Because it's not by my power or might that anything is good about me. It's all Him that has produced this. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Listen, the life, the life that is lived as a saint of God, the life that you live that causes other people to glorify the Lord is something that actually brings the Lord more glory. He is glorified even more when my life has influenced somebody else and so that they then yield to God themselves and then He is able to accomplish all of His good pleasure in them too, just like He's doing for me. 
Did, did, I, did I explain that well to you? I'm not getting any help, any, any feedback here at all. Listen, something that brings God glory is when your life has impacted somebody else that has caused them to want to glorify the Lord and yield to the Lord, and now God has the freedom to take and accomplish all of His good pleasure in their life too. And that's being multiplied, and God is being magnified and glorified. Listen, the point is testimony matters. It matters. And how you and I live affects and impacts other people for the glory of God. Our testimony matters. And these are ways, and there's more. We could talk about many more. These are ways that we bring glory to God. I guess the question really is, what is your highest aim? Paul said, I'm praying for you that these things would be accomplished in you through your sufferings even, that you'd be counted worthy, that God would continue this work that He has started in you, that it only comes from His goodness and His grace in your life, that your faith would be strengthened so that He is glorified even more in your life. But then I want you to notice the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. And then he says, and ye in him. What does that mean? That you, that I, would be glorified in him. So Paul says that your life brings glory to the Lord, but that you also may be glorified in him. What does that mean? Well, currently, take your Bible, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, while I just make a comment here. Currently, the saints of God are now glorified in Christ as our head, as our representative. Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1, And you hath he quickened, that means he's made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So this is the point when somebody gets saved. He makes you a new creation. He's made you alive in Christ. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. So the Lord has done that. Wherein in time past, your past life, you walked according to the course of this world. What did you do? How did you live? You lived according to your own will, your own way, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You think you're in control? You're not actually in control at all. That's not how you lived. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. We all lived this way. This was all our lifestyle. We're dead in sins. That's how we're born. He says we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh. What did we do? We fulfilled the desire of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We didn't live according to the will of God. We lived according to our flesh. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together 
and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, we read this whole passage, but I want you to notice verse 5 and verse 6 again. So here you were dead in sins. You've been made alive in Christ. Uh, and we, we had this old life, this old flesh that we used to live by. But now God, who is rich in mercy, uh, has given us brand new life. We were dead in sins. He's made us Listen, verse 5, when we were dead in sins, He's quickened us together with Christ. Verse 6, hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice the word together is used several times, and it's always related to Christ. Now, question, where is Christ right now? Well, right now, He's seated at the right hand of God right? Romans 8, 34 says, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Where is Jesus Christ right now? In heavenly places at the right hand of God. Ephesians 2, 5 says that we were quickened together with Christ. Verse 6 says we've been raised up together and made to sit together with Christ. What does that tell us? What does that tell you and me? As far as how God views our position, how God views us right now. Listen, in the purpose of God, we've been raised from the grave of sin, amen? And we're seated with the risen Lord in a place of acceptance, a place of victory. We were buried with Christ, amen? When He lay in the grave, when He rose again, the Bible tells us here that we've been raised up together and made to sit together in heavenly places. In other words, what I'm saying is, in the mind of God, in the eyes of God, we've already taken our seat with the glorified Christ. In God's mind, it's, it's already happened. Amen. But is that the current reality right now? That's not how we're living yet, because we're still here. But in the mind of God, this has already happened. Now notice verse 7, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, in the mind of God, it's already happened. We've been made to, to we're risen together with Christ. We're, we're glorified with Christ. In the mind of God, that's already what's happened. But in the ages to come, he might show that. And this is what Paul is talking about back in our text. 
when he says that the name of Christ would be glorified in you and ye in him. We glorify Christ now while we live here on this earth. But when Jesus comes again and when the work of grace and the work of faith is finished upon our souls, listen, we're going to be glorified together with Him and by Him. In the resurrection, we're going to appear in glory with Him both in soul and in body. We're going to be made like Him. We're going to see Him as He is. And that's what Jude talks about when when Jude says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory both now and forever. Amen. This is a great truth. How are we going to be glorified in Him? Well, currently, we are in Christ already, but someday is coming. And when someday comes, both body and soul, we're going to be made like Jesus Christ. What glory. Amen? Paul is encouraging these believers that God is got a work that he started and God has got a work that he's going to finish that is going to glorify you in Jesus Christ. And it's all according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the grace, the free favor of God. When did that happen? In redemption in justification, in pardon, in adoption, in sanctification. Listen, the whole of salvation from first to last is all of God's goodness and God's grace. And it's not done yet. Amen? This life is going to pass. We're going to see the Lord as He is. We're going to be glorified with Christ like Christ. And it's all of grace, only the good pleasure of God, not of works. And ye in him, he says. In other words, that you may be regarded and treated as his friend when he comes to judge this world. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might experience all the honor that His grace is fitted and intended to impart on you. Paul's saying, I'm praying for all of these things so that you could glorify the Lord now in your life and in the end when God finishes His good work, you are glorified in Christ. The great end of the Christian life is to glorify the name of the Lord. That is the ultimate and great, and that's the reason we exist. But the great end of the grace of God for us or towards us is to stand us before the Father, spotless, like Christ, with Christ, and it brings Him great honor to do it. That's the things, those are the things that Paul has been 
praying for that would lead to these great results in their life. That's a powerful truth. And it ought to really help us to maybe recalibrate, if you will, what our real purposes are for living. Is it really to glorify the Lord in all that I do? How is Christ glorified in me? And then to thank Him and praise Him for His goodness toward me. That I'm going to be glorified in Christ. It's all because of His grace. Nothing deserved. Now, chapter 2, Paul gets to the issue at hand. Chapter 1 was a lot about his greeting to them and encouragement to them in their sufferings, in their persecutions, reminders for them about what's coming. Stay the course, endure. And so he gets to the issue at hand, even the reason for which he is writing. And you can see that by the first word that he uses. He says, now, we beseech you, brethren. So here's, um, he's changing direction or changing course, not in necessarily content, but getting to what he's going to talk about. And he says, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. And we'll talk about that next week. We'll start to get into what was going on in the church, why there was some confusion or misunderstanding about the return of the Lord. And like I said, some thought that the tribulation was happening already, but Paul was going to teach them that the rapture needed to happen first. You haven't gathered, we haven't gathered together with Christ. And so we'll get into those things next time. But I think the thought for us tonight is to be reminded of the, the great end of the Christian life, the ultimate goal, to bring glory to Christ, and to be thankful for the grace of God, because the ultimate end of the grace of God in me, working salvation in me, is to ultimately stand us before the Father, spotless, like Christ, which brings Him glory and honor. Amen? Things to be thankful for. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for your word here tonight. Just the instruction and reminder that it gives to us to have our priorities straight. Recalibrate. Be reminded. Why do I even exist? And anything good in me is only God's good pleasure being worked out in me. And the benefits of the future are only because of the grace of God in my life. don't deserve any of it. God's mercy is not giving me what I do deserve. God's grace is giving me everything I don't deserve. And Lord, we just need to say thank you tonight. Be humbled of how good you really are in our life and Come to the place of real surrender to you because you're only good and you're full of grace and mercy. And Lord, just I just pray that you just apply the word of God tonight as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.